1: Makaya Carver is a recent graduate of Brigham Young University, where she just finished her master's, looking at feral horses and their interactions with sagegrass. She's now a PhD student at NC State and is a non-hunter. And as such, I wanted to understand her perspective on hunting as it has been influenced by science and academia. A fascinating, short, 30-minute conversation that I think you're going to enjoy. Okay, so do you know the history between your dad and I? Has he told you?
2: No, the most I've heard from you is actually from intense conversations with Cody. So I'd really be <laughs> interested to hear.
1: <laughs> you know, it's funny. Your dad and I have, it's almost like two worlds collided with your dad. Um, we hosted him as almost like a veteran recipient on a bear hunt in Maine. That's where I met your dad for the first time. And with Craig Corsi? Yeah, with Craig was the second year we were going up to Craig's and uh, we said, hey, why don't we put some money together and see if we can invite someone? And Craig just happened to invite Daryl. And we met him and had obviously an amazing time. We connected about Blood Origins and we connected about Jason Hairston really significantly. And at the time I had been talking to Jason, we had just released Jason's episode And, uh, we talked about that and then literally we left bear camp. This was first week of September. We left Bear camp three weeks later, Jason committed suicide. And I found out early that day and I called your dad. He was the first person
0: I called. Really? Wow. Weird, huh?
2: That's uh, I'm like speechless. (laughs)
1: Well, that's not what we're here to talk about tonight. But, hey, that's the connection to your dad. I I think your dad's a very special individual. And uh, he holds certainly a a spot in my heart uh, for the rest of my life in terms of that connection. So, That's
2: incredible. Wow. Thanks for sharing.
1: (laughs) Well, unlike I typically, well, I've already spoken for two minutes and I haven't introduced you, but I'd like you to introduce yourself. And then uh, instead of giving me your credentials, I want you to just introduce yourself and then I'm going to ask a series of questions because I want that to sort of build who you are.
2: Sure. Yeah. Um, so my name is Micaiah Carver. Um, I am a PhD student um, studying wildlife conservation and ecology. Um, I just moved to North Carolina to study at NC State in the co-op unit out here. Congratulations. Um, Big yeah, PhD move. <laughs> yes, yes. Get ready so to fun. herd
1: cats for about four and a half years.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's. I, I'm not sure what I've gotten myself into, that's for sure.
1: But no, uh, yeah,
2: we're, I'm excited. We just finished up uh, at Brigham Young University out in Utah, where I finished my master's and my bachelor's. So, ready to dive into another project.
1: Okay, so bachelor's in
2: geography. Kay. Yes, very different.
1: Okay, master's in
2: wildlife and wildlands conservation is the title.
1: Wildlife and wildlands conservation. Mm-hmm. And what did you, what was your dissertation or your thesis
2: on? So my thesis out there was on the feral horse interaction with a greater sage grouse, which is a bird. So it's a very hot, controversial topic. Um, it was a lot we of fun. We are
1: not going to talk about feral horses on this <laughs> podcast, but now that I know that you did your master's on feral horses, we will have you back and have a very hard hitting conversation about feral horses.
2: I am excited. I actually listened to one of your previous episodes where Cody had made a statement on horses and I was like, oh, that'd be fun to get into. And
1: <laughs> no, it, it, it is, let's be honest. If, if we'll dive, we'll dive in a little bit. Feral horses, just like feral cats are probably, you can even throw in wolves into this whole argument. It's probably the most contentious conservation issue that we face on this planet today. from a horse's perspective, not on the planet, but from a horse's perspective in the West, in terms of their population dynamics and their effects on ecosystems, right?
2: Oh, absolutely. And it also makes it really difficult to study them based on how controversial and how protected they are. And, you know, we as humans, we see them as like, you know, like you said, cats and dogs in this sense that we kind of um, create them to be like pets. And so sometimes I think that limits us from making very important management decisions. And so it's very very difficult to maneuver.
1: Well, same thing with feral cats, right? The feral cat uh, effects on bird life, on reptiles and small mammals around the world, Australia being a key example. Um, and they the anthropomorphizing of we have a pet, we have a cat that lives with us, and now they're feral. What right. do you do, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And then, sage, and then the sagegrass element is awesome because obviously low in numbers want to restore them want to restore them back to original habitats and original population numbers
2: yeah and and the interesting about sage grouse is the fact that you know yes we do want to restore their numbers but another thing too is that they're a sagebrush obligate species so you know we can use them and their numbers as kind of a reflectance of like how the greater sagebrush ecosystem is doing as a whole you know so if they're doing bad we would kind of infer that their ecosystem is not doing well. And so it's kind of this greater whole of like, okay, well, what can we do to kind of protect this species and their mm-hmm. environment?
1: Mm-hmm. It's a great indicator species.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You must have just defended your thesis or something like that.
2: Oh, I did, <laughs> uh, I think last month. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like, because your answers, I was like, oh, I can hear a professor asking like this question <laughs> and you've got your answer ready to go.
2: Yes, it was a great time. Love defending.
1: Yeah, exactly. We as we all do. Just wait until your comps midway through your PhD.
2: Oh I I'm so Fun looking forward to it.
1: Fun time. So uh, PhD is going to be looking at do you have a, a dissertation topic yet?
2: Yeah, so we're looking out here um, at mule or excuse me, not mule deer, well whitetail deer um, in the Durham area um, along this rural urban continuum, and so kind of just deer ecology and kind of where their movement patterns are, uh, what's killing them, so cause specific mortality, just kind of deer ecology in general. Um, We're really um, pinpointing, you know, what's driving deer populations out here in the east, and there's actually a few master students that were brought on, um, for this project as well, who one will be, uh, working on a lot of hunter, um, interactions with these deer as well. So there's going to be a much, very much of a hunter element to this. Uh, I won't be specifically necessarily working on that, but, um, it's got a lot of really interesting facets to this project.
1: So you said you're working with a co-op unit, USGS co-op unit. Yes. Yes. Very nice.
2: Yeah. That's
1: a great step. The USGS co-op units do great work. And, um, if you want any introductions to any of the, I'm sure the NC State guys know the guys out of Mississippi State University, the Big White Tail Lab out of Mississippi State University. But if, if they don't and you need some uh, contacts or introductions, I'd be happy to make them for you.
2: That'd be wonderful.
1: Because <laughs> I came out of that uh, that department. I don't know if you knew that the wildlife issues and aquaculture. I was a professor there for six years.
2: Oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. How awesome! So yep. I do know that I even wrote
1: a deer I even wrote a deer management article about Doe's being a wetland ecologist and the deer the deer the, the, the wow. deer biologist of Mississippi State said Robbie though we love your writing and we love what you do please don't write another deer management <laughs> article. You're the water quality guy in this department. <laughs> I was so pissed off. I'll tell you why. I was so pissed off that I went to a property, I went to Bo Hunter property. And I was told when I arrived on site that they had reached their doe quota for the year. And I understand management. I understand that you have to manage populations. And specifically when it comes to whitetails, you want to manage a, a buck to doe ratio. I said, no problems. I sat five times. I didn't kill, I didn't shoot anything. And the ratio of does to bucks that I saw was six to one. I had, I saw about 150 does to 10 to 15 bucks and I was pissed because I was like, whoever is managing this property doesn't know what they're doing and is going to throw uh, the extra cycles in terms of the does into multiple stages and going to lead to later fawn recruitment into the population that's going to cause especially if this deer club is after big buck trophy animals, why would you sacrifice a, a form being born later into summer and the resources on the ground be lacking that would affect the antler growth for the rest of its life?
2: Right.
1: So I was pissed. And so I wrote an article.
2: <laughs> hey, that's the best way to get it done though.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, Let me ask a question. Makaya, you are a non-hunter.
2: I'm a non-hunter. Yes, that is correct.
1: You are a non-hunter. Let me ask you this. Uh, Prior to Brigham Young, prior to you taking this PhD in North Carolina, can you tell me, and maybe it's the same because I I don't want to make any assumptions, what was your perspective
0: and opinion of hunting?
2: Well, I know it's kind of, uh, I like this question because, you know, my dad, you know, my dad, and, um, he's very involved with blood origins and a lot of my family members are very big in the hunting community. They love to hunt. Um, they kind of, that's a big pastime for them. So I grew up around that kind of, um, activity. Um, I personally never felt like, oh, I want to go hunting or fishing or whatever, you know, it kind of just never really struck a chord for me. I never really was sure. super interested in that. Um and there was definitely a phase in my life where I kind of entered that like, you know, we shouldn't kill things. We shouldn't eat animals. We shouldn't do this, that, this, and that, you know? Um, but I think after my master's degree, I think my perspective really changed. Um and I think it's interesting because um a couple of years back I went to the hunting expo in Utah. And that was when Cody and I had our fabulous conversation at the piano bar. Um but prior to that I was actually talking to um Mike Hairston at the banquet and we were sitting we just at released a table. Mike
1: Hairston's episode, by the way.
2: I should I don't think I did listen to that yet. I was I've been not kind on, the of podcast, not on the
1: podcast through our uh Instagram platform and YouTube. We just released his story, his blood Ooh. origins episode himself about what hunting means to him. It's fantastic have go you check need to watch it.
2: Yeah, I love listening to Mike. He's awesome. No, yeah. Yeah. No. So it's kind of funny because, you know, in this banquet, um, it's a very political um, arena. You know, there's definitely a lot of hunters and a lot of people who kind of, you know, wolves were a very hot topic that year. Right. And it was funny because Mike and I were sitting at this banquet table and my dad and Kirsten and everyone were over at the other table. And all they could see was, you know, me and Mike talking like this with our hands. And it looked from afar like we were arguing. And my dad had come over and was like, is everything okay? You know, but Mike and I were just having a good conversation. And um, at that point we were talking about the horses, but a lot of that came out of the conversation of, you know, killing wolves and stuff like that. And so long story short, I've kind of digressed a little bit, but um, I think that my um, evolution from thinking that hunting was um, not necessarily the best thing to go- do uh, it really came from my academic career and, um, working in a department where, um, hunters funded a lot of the research and it really opened my eyes to the fact that, you know, hunters are conservationists. And while, yes, I do think sometimes it's a little biased to big game species, you know, whatever it may be. Um, and that's just me speaking from an ecological standpoint, because we have all sorts of other things that need to be studied as well. Um, I have really grown a good, um, what's the word appreciation for hunters and their role in management and conservation, because we wouldn't be able to do a lot of the research that has been done without hunting money. And I am a pro I mean, hunters are by and large funding my PhD project. And so, you know, one, it's one of those things that, you know, unfortunately in research, you kind of have to do where you get the you know, things where you get funding for. And, um, I think that it's opened my eyes to the fact that hunters do a lot for conservation and I care a lot about, um, balance in ecosystems. And I really have gotten to a point where I don't care how that happens. You know, Mm -hmm. if it's more hunting permits, then great. You know, if it's whatever the case may be, as long as we are kind of moving towards a better goal of balance in these ecosystems. Right. I think that whatever needs to happen can happen. You know? Right, let me
1: let me play a devil's advocate question on you, because this happens to a lot of scientists. Once you graduate out of your PhD and you say decide to take an academic tenure position, if that's what you what you choose to do. Um, or we hire you at Blood Origins, you know, who knows? Um There's a lady, I don't know if you've run across her, her name's Amy Dickman. We've had her on this podcast before. If you haven't listened to her podcast, I would suggest you do it because you're going to fall in love with her. She is a non-hunter. She is almost anti-hunting in terms of her philosophy, but she proudly champions trophy hunting in terms of what it's doing for African wildlife, specifically lions. And she has been raped across the coals. No, I didn't say, I meant raked, not raped. Um, Raked across the coals Because she got a little bit of money from Dallas Safari Club way back in her career. It was like $7,000. The lady has like a million-dollar research program, an annual million-dollar research program. Right. And people still point to that and say, you catered to the hunting industry. So, Makai, let me ask you this question. You said at Brigham Young, you know, I don't know specifically if your research was funded by hunters or not. Probably a little bit was. Um, and your research at NC State is funded from hunters, quote-unquote. Is your research biased to an outcome to favor hunting?
2: You know, that's a wonderful question, because my master's research was not funded through hunters at all. Um, But then again, my species that I focused on wasn't really big game or, you know, anything like that. So, yeah, it's a great question, because you do think that, you know, there's disclaimers when you're, you know, putting in for a publication, right? Like, is your funding going to influence what results you found in this paper? And um, I think that there's a lot of ethical things wrong, if that is the case. But I think as a true scientist, you kind of want to chip away at the truth, right? And whatever truth that may be, I think it's important to be as unbiased as possible. And you know, I haven't quite entered the realm of of huntered funded research yet. Um, but at the same time, I don't see myself really taking that bias approach because I kind of walk that fine line of pro-hunting and anti-hunting. You know, I like to say that I'm kind of that really neutral space. And so
0: um,
2: as a researcher, I think that's a good space to be in. But I do know that there are researchers out there that do are pro hunters or pro hunting or that are anti hunting? And I, I, I think the scientific community in general, I would hope that they. I don't know. That's, that's a tough question, no. Robbie. <laughs>
0: no, it isn't. No, it isn't. Look, and I'm purposely
1: asking you tough questions because um, it's something as scientists, and I'm a scientist today, right? Even though I'm, I'm not in the field anymore, I'm not conducting peer reviewed scientific based. Hypothetic, you know, hypothesis-driven experiments. I'm still a scientist, and I'm—I think what you said is very, very um, articulate. In that, it says you're chipping away at the truth. As scientists, we always want the truth. And in an academic field—and there's lots of scientists that don't work for academia—you're almost—you're supposed to be protected. That was—that's the whole point of tenure: is that when you get tenure as an academic. You're protected because the university then protects you and you are allowed to speak truth, even if the truth is not what the governor of the state wants to hear. Yes, this dam that you're proposing is going to have terrible effects on some endangered fish species, XYZ. And that's truth. We don't want to, from a science perspective, if we want to maintain the scientific integrity of the integrity of the scientific process, we have to be able to defend science being unbiased. And I think one of the things that we as hunters need to recognize is that, and we, we, we try to do this as much as we possibly can, is that hunting isn't on a pedestal and things go wrong. And in certain circumstances, for instance, if hunting is causing a population of a certain species to go down, some sort of adaptive management needs to be put in place based on data to rectify the situation such that that population can be sustained in the future, if it, it can be increased in the future. If that means a hunting moratorium needs to be put in place, so be it.
0: And we have to recognize that and say, oh, we're actually, we're hunting to the detriment of the population and we need to reverse course.
1: Um, let me ask this from a, from a pure wildlife conservation wildlife management perspective you've been in the field for you've got a bachelor's it's you know let's call it 4 years 5 years okay through the through the science system through your academic learnings what can you
0: do to manage wildlife
2: i think um, it's important to kind of Understand that as a researcher and as a scientist, your role isn't necessarily to make management decisions. Your role is to be that of a educator um, and to provide. You know, isn't that the point
1: of your science, Makaya? Wouldn't you want your science to be used for
2: management? I think yes, you do, and I think it's tough because sometimes you you may publish a paper or whatever that you know certain interest groups can use against you based on, you know, what your findings are. And I think, you know, where I sit in this kind of along this line of making management decisions, I am not the person who makes the management decisions. I don't get to go out and, you know, implement these different things. Um, I get to kind of conduct the research, write it up and say, hey, these are the facts. Take what you can from this and make a difference. Hopefully they'll use it for good. But at the end of the day, I don't work for the Division of Wildlife. I don't work for you know these these resource commissions. I don't work for the federal government. So at the end of the day, I'm not going to be in there making any formal decisions. And you know maybe at the end of my academic career, that's what I want to step into because I do enjoy that aspect of it. But at this point in my career, I'm kind of just the sure. little researcher. <laughs>
1: Absolutely no no. And I and I was with um, I was in that boat with you back and back doing it. But I want to push you, though. I want want you to seat yourself in that manager position based on your knowledge, based on your academic knowledge of wildlife, population dynamics, behavior ecology. What can you do, Micaiah, if we were asking you, Micaiah, how do you manage population A or population B? What can you do? Like physically, like what could you do?
2: From a hunting perspective or generally from a management perspective,
1: how do you manage a population?
2: You know, I think it would depend on the population itself, you know, because for one species, it would be very different than another. Um, Managing a population, it takes a lot. Um, You need to have a lot of background knowledge. You need to have a lot of background knowledge on the overall ecosystem as a whole you need to have a lot of background knowledge on different management decisions that happened decades before and what kind of ah, happened to instill the projections of what you're seeing now you know um i think a you know a very extreme example um you know the wolves in yellowstone when okay. they were when they were killed off back in what the 20s or whatever yep. you know that was a decision that they made for the ranchers, you know, at that point in time, because the wolves were killing off a lot of the livestock, right? I think that it's interesting because, you know, at that point in time, we managed the wolf population as is. Well, then over several decades, we saw that ungulate, you know, specifically elk populations grew exponentially and overall biodiversity went down because vegetation I mean, basically the elk were pretty much starving themselves out at that point, right? Because mm-hmm. there were so mm-hmm. many of them. Um, that's what I think happens when you kind of disrupt an ecosystem and take out that keystone species, which le- then led to the reintroduction of them. Well, you know, like I said, you kind of have to look back at different management decisions, to see, okay, what happened in the past to kind of see, okay, we don't want to do this again. We want to make sure that we can kind of keep this ecosystem in equ- equilibrium. So I think Managing a population of any species, it takes a lot of background knowledge and understanding of the whole ecosystem as a whole.
1: Okay. i Am I answering down. your
2: question? It's late here, Robbie.
1: I know it's late. <laughs> You're throwing curveballs at me. <laughs> so I'm going to break down two things that you said because I think you left out a couple of things. Number one is yes. Understanding science, knowledge, of said population is critical to any management decision. Check the box, Micaiah said yes, that is correct. Good job. Number two is based on that
0: information, you can do a couple of things.
1: Number one, you can reintroduce animals. You knock knock that checkbox off. Number two, checkbox you did not tick off, is you can remove those animals. And there's really only two ways to remove animals,
0: Makaya. And what is that? Hunting. Hunting And translocation. Mm -hmm. And moving them out, right? And
1: so when you think about it, from a management perspective, that's what a manager gets to play with. Now, obviously, they get to play with Fire and they get to play with vegetation management and whatnot. But for the population itself, to manage the population itself, there's really not much else you can do, right? You can, you can improve the habitat that raises the population. But once that population is raised, there's very limited options for, or for a wildlife manager to undertake. You either create some sort of take system, hunting system, in which you decide, based on your science, what kinds of animals are being taken, females or males, what age class are being taken, and that will then appropriately scale the population to your habitat objectives, whatever other objectives you have. Or you decide, we're not hunting, but rather we're going to pick certain animals out of certain age classes or certain gender classes, and we're going to move them somewhere else. Can you think of anything else you could do to for wildlife
2: in terms of either taking away or adding to an ecosystem?
1: Yeah, I'm just thinking. Just I, I guess I'm I'm, I'm belabouring a point here, and I apologize.
2: <laughs>
1: that. From a wildlife conservation perspective, from a wildlife management perspective, being able to manage wildlife on the landscape, it is, there's very limited options to what you can do when it comes to how you manage that population.
2: I totally agree. And I think, I think it's interesting as you said that, you know, because um, yes, hunting is instilled in a lot of different popula- you know, populations, whether it's deer or elk, you know, throughout the world. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, they use hunters as these, um, a means to an end to kind of keep populations low. Right. But you know, what about those, those species that can't be hunted like horses, or I know we weren't going to touch this with a an foot pole, but you know, you think about other species, right. That like,
1: why couldn't we hunt horses?
2: I, I am not for or against it. <laughs> I am probably for it, honestly, at this point. But, you know, it's one of those things, right? There's a lot of red tape with certain species. And, you know, I I, I think of it as, you know, because I think hunting works in a lot of areas as a great way to mitigate populations from crashing, right? Um, But I also see it as kind of a band-aid because, you know, well, what else is going wrong in these systems that is allowing for these populations to be so Mm -hmm. prolific, right? Mm -hmm. And so from a, you know, a long-term standpoint, you know, what is the, you know, as sometimes it's not feasible to do a long-term kind of solution, but from a long-term standpoint, what is the best way to keep these populations at bay, you know, and sometimes it's not hunting, you know, sometimes it might be bringing in back in a keystone species or whatever it may be. Right. And so it's tough because it's, you know, and these are the, like you said, the decisions that management has to face, that they're all different. Not every single ecosystem is going to have the exact same answer. And, it's really tough.
1: No, you're absolutely right. The, the complexity of you know, ecosystem management and multiple wildlife species interacting and the habitat all working together. And you're absolutely right. Hunting is a management tool, but it's not the panacea of wildlife management. There are certain, certainly other tools that can be used, but obviously all have to be you know, very carefully considered just due to the circumstance, right? If you're like, you're doing an NC state, right? You've got a, you're dealing with white-tailed deer population in an urban rural interface. I don't know what, you know, in terms of management, it's probably not the best idea to reintroduce black bears into that right. system, right? right? To take fawns <laughs> out or, coo- or, or cougars or pumas, right? Totally. Um, so, but then again, and, and and I'm actually gonna correct myself in that I said that you can only translocate and and man actually no, I'm not gonna correct myself because I was no, right. I
2: think it's solid, yeah.
1: <laughs> no, what I was about to say is that you're gonna have the, the the other side of the argument which is really crazy, which is in the urban interface, and it's happened in Staten Island in New York, you can look up the studies in which they decided to do hysterectomies on white does and essentially stop them reproducing. People have played with this idea of that type of management, but then all of a sudden the deer population tripled and you're like, actually they didn't do hysterectomies, they did vasectomies on bucks. And the population still tripled. And they were like, what's going on? Well, they didn't account for the roaming nature of rutting mm-hmm. white-tailed bucks uh, in the area. But there's going to be people are going to come with off the wall ideas like that all the time.
2: Right. Yeah, it's a really tough. It's one of those things that's kind of you could you could rack your brain all day and you'll never find the perfect answer in a lot of instances.
1: So to wrap things up a little bit, let me ask you a couple of questions. So you have changed your perspective on, on hunting through academia,
0: through yes. your science.
2: I would say so to an extent. Yes. Yeah. I am no longer that girl that was not very smart and thought that you shouldn't kill things.
1: <laughs> but at the time you were a meat eater?
2: Yes. And that's another thing. I'd be the biggest hypocrite. Right. You know, I, I, I'm one of those people that it's like, you know what? I mean, I definitely practice more of a plant-based diet now, but at the time, right. You know, my parents would bring home chicken and beef from the grocery store and i ate that right and so it's kind of like if you can get it fresh get it fresh i am not against Mm -hmm. that you Mm -hmm. know Mm
1: -hmm. um would you consider hunting today
2: um i i i've thought about this because prior to getting into my phd program one of my um, advisors at um in utah he's a big hunter and he um runs the mule deer research out of byu and I was like, you know, hey, what, you know, before my um, interview, I was like, are there any major questions that I I should, you know, be prepared for? And he knowing me, that I'm not a hunter. He was like, you know, they're probably going to ask you if you're a hunter. And I was like, why in the world would that even matter? You know, and in my head, I'm like, this is stupid. That's like discrimination, you know, but it, you know, hindsight, it's like, it makes total sense because I'm going to be interacting with hunters on a day to day basis, right? Presenting at conferences with by and large, big time hunters. And um I don't think that I I think I get my wildlife itch enough as it is doing research that I don't necessarily feel like I need to go and truck through the wilderness to kill something
0: sure. because
2: I get to go see them all the time anyway. Um but I'm not against it, you know? Like I like it. If I had gotten, you know, if my dad wants to go take me somewhere cool, like I'll go. But I'm not like really scratching at the itch to go and Kill
1: <laughs> well, I appreciate that. That's a very honest perspective, and we really, really appreciate that perspective. I will lay this on your feet, though. If ever you decide
0: that you want to try and you want to
1: take that next step, which is a very thoughtful, very, you know, something that we don't take for granted as hunters, and especially the first time because it's it really is and a lot of people call me melodramatic, but it's really it's the it's a chasm between life and death, right? Right and you and you are the instrument that crosses that chasm. Right. Um if there is an inkling and there is an idea that you may want to do it, please let us know. Because yeah. I think that it would be fascinating to capture it the way that we capture it on Blood Origins and sort of get that, pro- get that feeling through that process from you as you did it.
2: Absolutely. For sure. You'll be the first to know.
1: Well, I appreciate it, <laughs> Micaiah. Any last parting words?
2: No. I really appreciate the...
1: You were nervous uh, coming into this, as I understand.
2: Well, yeah. I, I mean, I was like reading, like listening to your roundups. So I was like texting Cody. I'm like, well, when are you going to give me the articles? And he's like, oh, no, no articles. I'm like, what? All these roundups, you guys go through articles. I'm like, so then I started listening to the ones where you kind of interview different people. And I'm like, oh, okay, so this is what it's going to be like. So I was like, just not sure what to expect. So, yeah, I I was asking Cody. I'm like, hey, is he going to give me any questions? You know, like I mean, you did throw some curveballs at me tonight for. It being 9.45 at night, I'm kind You're of a little a bit of a dud.
1: Student. You're not supposed to <laughs> sleep anymore.
2: <laughs> not until the 15th. I still have a few more days.
1: <laughs> there we go. Well, Makaya, I appreciate you coming on. I really do.
2: I appreciate it. It's been great. Thank you so much, Robbie. I
1: appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review. Share it with your friends. And most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.